From the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia to around the globe, you're listening to Shark Bite Biz, your exclusive place for business strategy, sales, marketing, and tech in the roaring 20s. And now, here's your host, David Strausser. And you just arrived to the newest episode of Shark Bite Biz, I'm your wannabe rock star host, David Strausser, and this is your place to learn how to grow a business during complete global chaos. We're going to chat about your business and money today. First, though, remember, if you're watching us on YouTube, you can join the channel. Become a baby shark for only three. Yeah, three, one, two, three, three dollars a month. Now, if giving money through big tech isn't your thing, do not worry. We have the freshest coffee known to exist. That is uh, roasted, sealed, and shipped all within a 24-hour period to your doorstep. Go to deadhousecoffee.com. You use the code SHARK. You're going to get 20% off of your order, and then we're going to get all those proceeds that help us build the biggest and best show we possibly can. It's zombie-themed coffee. It's fun. Get back to life with DeadHouseCoffee.com. So we got a great show for today. We're going to be chatting about creating a sustainable business. Sustainable can take different shapes and different forms for each business out there, but our guest really gives us some of the highlights about what it means to him and the knowledge that he shares to the business owners that he works with. This is one of those episodes that are going to be really cool. We got a great guest and it's going to be really info packed, you know, going to have the type of information that's real life experience and, you know, it's going to give you that upfront and blunt advice that you just really can't get anywhere else unless you've experienced it yourself. In fact, you're going to love it during this interview. What I tell them, oh, you know, a lot of financial planners on our show has said, this is something that's important. And he was like, BS, you don't need that. That's just something for them to sell. And to me, that's amazing because I wouldn't know that. I would think because of all the experts saying we need it, that we need it. But he has a very good point, and uh, I think you might love that point as well, too. I know you're going to love his bluntness just as I did. So who do we have today? None other than Mr. Josh Patrick. Josh Patrick is a serial entrepreneur who has learned the hard way. He's made the mistakes, read the books, attended the seminars to learn what it takes to create an economically sustainable business. He's the author of Sustainable, a fable about creating a personally and economically sustainable business, and The Sale Ready Company. Both of these books you can see right behind me if you're watching us on YouTube. But if not, don't worry. We'll have links to them down below. So without further delay, let's bring Mr. Patrick on in here. Business operations. Josh, welcome to Shark Bite Biz. You, my friend, you just became Shark Bait. Oh no! Well, thanks a lot for having me on the show. <laughs> oh, uh, no problem. Shark Bait is, but it's scary. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're just kind of dangling out there, and uh, we'll see what happens. Next thirty minutes is going to be fun. 
So we have a tradition on this show. Very first question we ask every single person, what's your experience? What's your background? What are you doing? How did you get there? We really want to, we, we love learning about the individuals and career transformations and all that type of stuff because it helps us better understand what you're doing today and the value it has today. So please tell us in a nutshell, what makes Josh, Josh? Well, I've been in business since 1976 full time. Wow. So that's a year or two ago. First 20 years, I had a food service and vending company where we fed people worked in factories. I started that business with one part-time employee. When I sold it 20 years later, we had grown to 90 employees doing about $6 million in sales. Sold that at the end of 1995. Along the way, the worst thing that happened to a new business owner happened to me. Oh, you know what that, that worst thing is when you're 24 years old? No. What is it? I had a lot of success. <laughs> I mean, a lot of success. And I thought it was because of my brilliant business acumen. And right. the truth was, I was just lucky. And then reality set in. And right. for the next four years, I struggled to keep the doors open. Mm -hmm. We were very profitable, but eating cash up like crazy. And I didn't know how to read a cash right. flow statement. And we flat ran out of cash. And I had a $200,000 embezzlement on top of that. Oh, and back, oh in and back in 1978, that was a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, 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 wait. So were you the one that embezzled it? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping so. I mean, I'm I was hoping a, I was the one it was I was the one who was embezzled. Right, right. So anyway, right. I went through all this stuff being the worst manager, worst owner, worst person to work for whoever existed. I yelled at somebody every day. I never took responsibility for anything. It was always someone else's fault. And yeah. along the way, I learned that was a really, 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 really bad strategy to run. How so, did you come to that realization, though, that that was a bad strategy to run a business? Um, I was at a New Age seminar, mm -hmm. and there was an exercise that was really in-depth. And I learned that responsibility was to make me and my, and my fault. So I need to stop blaming and stop justifying why I was living, take responsibility for everything that was happening in my company, and apologize to all the folks that work with me. Now, they yeah. didn't believe me when I told them that stuff. Yeah. So um, it took years and years for they get me to get the point across. And the truth oh, it's, is it's that that comes down to lead by example i mean you can say something and employees are going to think yeah sure but if that's something that you truly realized and you do have that as a core belief the only way to win people over especially people that have known you to be opposite of that is to lead by example and actually doing what you're saying and what you're preaching and it sounds like that's what you ended up doing. Yeah, employees never listen to what you say. They watch what you do. Right. And if you're not if you're not walking your talk and being consistent with what you're saying is important in your company, they see that right away and they learn to ignore you, which is what they did yeah. in the first 10, 15 years of my business. 
And then finally, um, they learned that when I said the stuff, I was actually serious because I kept following through and following through and following through and following through. And it wasn't the first, fifth, tenth, or even fifteenth time I did. It was probably the hundredth time I had to do it yeah. before people started believing that what I said was what I meant. You know, I, I have one comment. I just so I just have one comment there that I wanted to mention on taking the ownership responsibility for everything under your company. We just lost a deal and there were external factors. We had a partner that was pushing us to do things that was their way and their style to do a sales process. And everything that they, they told me was against my gut check. And I'm like, no, I, I'm a sales expert. I'm a, I, I am very good at business development. I'm very good at leading sales cycles, managing sales cycles, managing sales teams. And my gut check is telling me this is wrong, but we still did it to, to please the partner. We ended up losing the deal. Ultimately, I had to deliver the loss of the news and the reasonings and stuff like that to our executive team. Um, and ultimately, you know, I said, hey, you know, I'm going to follow my own sword here. Uh, I take responsibility. I didn't listen to my gut check, my experience, and I left an external factor drive the sale. So it's my fault, not their fault, not the sales rep's fault. It's my fault uh, as being the quarterback of the sales cycle, ultimately, for not closing the, the deal. And when you do something like that, um, it, it just really, I don't know, it, it, it's kind of like, I think people take you more serious because they view that like, yeah, this guy owns up or this gal owns up to their actions. They realize where they could have done things better. And when they make a mistake, they are going to own up to it. I, I think that comes down to being authentic and genuine. And they're two of the characteristics that I think, uh, you know, is most important in a manager and an owner um, and especially a sales rep. So if you were working for me mm -hmm. and that happened, I would ask you this question. What did you learn? What did I learn? That, um, uh, and this, I actually literally before this call went through with this with my uh, boss that I report to, and it was that I cannot have this external partner driving their agenda because it doesn't fit our agenda. And as we've seen in this case, the client's agenda. So what I ended up doing was I had a heart to heart. And I said, hey, with, with, with that partner, I said, I, I got this feedback. I have it directly. I actually had the whole meeting recorded with the postmortem, free to listen to it, to verify this. This is what they said. So ultimately, we came to an agreement about how to be able to work together as a cohesive unit going forward instead of having colliding agendas. And I think ultimately that's what we learned through this sales cycle. So that way 
we do not lose another quarter of a million dollar deal because of conflicting agendas. Okay. Do you think that's a, a, a fair uh, learning experience there? Do you think there's more to be learned? Well, I don't know. You'll find out when you go forward. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that might be the right solution, and you might make another mistake and have to try a different um, option. I mean, don't get me wrong. There is a ton of little, little stuff, too. But the little stuff is all very easily correctable. You know, I have a green sales rep. Um, the guy's great, huge potential. Uh, but this is the next step up in his career, and there's some growing pains. So we went over some of these little little tweaks, and in fact, he already has it corrected, I believe, going forward. So I mean, it was a great it was a great learning experience for us. And I probably should add. This is with one of our newer product lines that we launched this year. It's not our well-established product line that we're super extremely successful with that we've been doing for over 20 years. So that's where there's also some growing pains in that relationship too uh, with that new partner, just to kind of give a little more context with it. Cool. So let's get back to you and as far as your story and how you've ended up evolving. So eventually I sort of figured out how to run a business mm -hmm. and we were probably one of the better companies in the country when it came to the food service. Um, we were doing things nobody else did. Nobody else ever thought could be done. Right. And uh, in 1995, I had a decision was, do I want to cheat my customers? because the vending business at that point had the ability to run two sets of books and everybody was doing it except us. Mm -hmm. Not everybody, but almost everybody. I decided not to go down that road and we found a buyer for our company, sold it. Um, uh -huh. Deal was pretty good. And then I was thinking about what's next in my life. And it was either open the software company up, become a platform speaker professionally, or go into the wealth management business. And I started selling life insurance. I chose door number three. Um, wow. My uh, best best audience to work with were blue collar, privately held business owners. And that's who I work with. That's who I still, yeah. who I still work with. And um, I found out very quickly that blue collar, private business owners in the professional world of wealth management need a lot more than just life insurance. So I left the life insurance yeah. company, both my own wealth management firm, and developed a whole host of uh, uh, processes that we help people become personally and economically sustainable. That leads to having a company sale ready. And I focus on uh, blue collar construction companies. And specifically, mm -hmm. I help rising generations, which means either young family members or young managers learn what has to be necessary to become the next owners of a company. Yeah, no, that that is amazing. And that is a an area that I can also speak to. My father has a uh, contracting company in rural Pennsylvania that he actually opened, uh, coincidentally, back in 1976. Uh, and I remember during the 90s, all his ads were Strausser contracting since 1976 because he wanted to show that, hey, I'm not a fly-by-nighter. We've been around for 20 years at this point. And, you know, it, it worked for him. But 
you know, while he was good at roofing and some of that stuff, you get into the financial planning aspect. And that is where things kind of um, fall apart with a lot of these companies because the owners, you know, like my father, for example, didn't have the skill set for the wealth management. So when his company blew up, he kind of ended up losing it all and selling, you know, his clientele list for a fraction of the cost that he could have had he had somebody helping him on the wealth management side? Well, the truth is most construction companies are unsaleable anyhow. I mean, yeah. you're as good as your last bid and nobody's buying a business like that. Where mm -hmm. they are, what they are is a transferable in okay. that if you have children in the business with you or you have managers, you know, superintendents in your business, um, they could, and they often do buy those businesses because they understand where the cash flow is coming from. They know how to run it. There is good trust between the owner and the next, um, you know, and the next owners. And because mm -hmm. of that, the owner is willing to hold paper and finding a deal very often. Uh, and the thing the owner needs to do, in fact, I was just writing a video script about this, is having a company that's economically sustainable, which mm -hmm. means it's sale ready, which means that somebody else would want to own it, is a really important factor if you want to transfer your business to anybody. Right. So you right. have to understand right. what, are, what are the four drivers of sustainability? And then what are the four buckets of profit that you need to fill so you have an economically sustainable company? Now you also want to pay attention to personal sustainability. There's mm -hmm. two sides of a business. There's the personal side and there's the economic side. Yeah, I often yeah. get owners to come in my office and say, I want to sell my business. And I'll say, when? They say, yesterday. And I'll say, why? And they'll say, well, I'm burned out. Mm -hmm. And usually the reason they're burned out is because they've been doing the same thing, which they're not very good at, for 20, 30, or 40 years, mm -hmm. and they're sick of it. So they right. want to go on and do something else, anything else. They don't care what it is. So the first thing we have to do is just kind of figure out, okay, what's that pain that's being there? And it's usually you're doing the wrong stuff in your business. So, and they don't know how to delegate. Hardest, right. The hardest skill to learn for somebody in business is how to be an effective and good delegator. Yeah, exactly. I mean, with my, my father's construction business, for example, we got him, I did work for him for about three years and that's where we became an Owens Corning certified contractor and we were preferred contractor. It was called able to use the pink Panther everywhere. Something I, that I think really set us apart was that we also had maintenance plans on our roofs for coverage to where we had predictable recurring revenue through these maintenance plans that we were doing back in the mid 2000s, which nowadays that stuff is probably more common. I don't know. I've been out of the industry for a while. Back then, it wasn't as common. It was kind of like roofing as a service, I guess you could say. But when we built up the business, instead of him doing $150,000 a year, uh, with him and a, a crew of four people in rural Pennsylvania, when we built it up to where we had three people going, being able to delegate tasks to 
hey, you're the foreman, you know, you're running this crew, you're doing that. In the beginning, it was a struggle. It was hard for him to do. And it took him a while to really get a hang of being able to do that. Yeah, well, it's a very difficult skill to learn. You know, people either over um, supervise or they under supervise. They rarely get it right. My first right. mentor in business had a great thing called the EIA. It stood for expect, inspect, accept. It was this method of how to manage delegation. You set up an expectation, you inspect to make sure it's done the way you want it, and then you accept the work. But I've actually added that is you often don't accept the work. You have to go back and reset expectations because you weren't very clear or very good in how you set the expectation. Right. And likely when you got around to inspecting, it was two or three or four weeks later, not three or four days to say, how are things going? Right, right, right. And, you know, again, even with my current job right now, um, I tell my director of professional services who implements all of our projects. I mean, our uh, two of our key focus areas are setting the correct expectations. And also framing, how do we frame the message? Because uh, we've got to make sure that they understand while we're also setting the right expectations. Like, hey, you just can't call us up and expect us to drop everything and do an eight-hour project for you on the dot. You know, you we got to get that into our consulting queue. And there's probably a one-week delay now, you know, if it's things like that that take a little bit, I think, for some people to be able to really learn and master how to do. But once they do that, I think it makes their lives so much easier. Yeah. Well, it, it, if you want to have a business that's fun to run, uh, you have to become operationally free from your business. If you want someone who's anxious to buy your business, you have to be out of the day-to-day -day operations. Right. Um, if you want to have a business that can grow, you have to be operationally free because you have to work on strategy in your business and you have to learn how to build a team that can run your business. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, your father's company, he was stuck at four or five people. I'm sure he tried delegation. I'm sure it wasn't very successful. And I'm sure he said, oh, I can't delegate because it doesn't work. Right. Right. That's exactly how it was up until. Um, I pushed him to hire a foreman that ultimately was in charge of the the main foreman, Ty. He was a great guy, um, but he ultimately was in charge of the three crews then that we had going, and they all had kind of like a I forget what we called, but they were like the sub foremans that would like the the crew chiefs that would run each one, but ultimately uh, they all reported up the tie. And once we got that structure in place and my father trusted tie, that's, that's when things started running smoothly, that we were able to actually fulfill the growth that I was giving him with the business. Because up until that happened, it was a train wreck. He didn't trust anybody to do it like, he could as far as managing a crew. Well, that's pretty typical, especially mm -hmm. in a subcontractor world. So what caused your father's business to go out of business? 
So it's a combination of things. I had uh, left working for family is very, very hard. And it just ended up being a lot of, he, 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 honestly, I, I'd hate to put it like this and be so blunt, but I think it was due to growing too fast, you know, go, literally going from uh, 150,000 a year. And then by the end of like, I, cause I worked about three and a half years for him. We were up mm -hmm. pushing $800,000 a year in revenue. And it was just the total lack of being able to manage that type of growth. Things weren't, you know, things were being missed. They weren't being paid, even though he had people to fulfill things. Quality was starting to, to lack. And then he also had some personal issues going on with him as well which didn't help the matter as well too. It was basically just everything started coming around, um, crashing on top of him. And that's when, you know, he ended up deciding, hey, I uh, need to get out of this. And he got out of it. And I really think that selling the, the maintenance plans that we had around the roofing and having that recurring revenue is probably and a pretty long, you know, client list that's been repeat business over the year is essentially, I think, what saved him and allowed him to get anything for the business. Because otherwise, I don't think he would have been able to to get anything with how the business was. Yeah, heavy maintenance contracts and uh, you know, subcontractors' business is still rare. I mean, mm -hmm. some of them do, but it's typically a very, very, very small percentage of their sales. Mm -hmm. Well, we weren't doing yeah, subcontracting. I mean, he was out there doing the main roofing, windows, siding. Yeah, that's a, that's just a, that's a subcontract. Sub okay. Okay. I view a subcontractor that would be like if he hired a crew that would work for him to fulfill the obligation, that well, would, he be would be a subcontractor. He, he would have been hired by a general contractor. Or no, by he, a homeowner to fix yeah. something on their house, right? And it's a sub. It's a subset of building a house. If it, if you were building a house and you built the mm -hmm. whole house, you'd be a general contractor, right? right. General he contract, was a general contractor that was because we were doing roof replacements. So these would be yeah, that's people that have already yeah. That's a, sub, that, that's a subcontractor's world. Okay. Okay. Yeah, like I said, I'm not up to to date as far as the uh, the terms in the industry go because it's been, whew, you know, probably about ten to fifteen years since I've been uh, been out of there. But I mean, let's talk a little bit about the flexibility and innovation that contractors need because it is an industry that is slow to innovate i've always found well all industries are basically slow to innovate because innovation often involves change and for whatever reason people aren't always in uh that much favor of change they don't like change a whole lot mm -hmm. so if you're going to innovate like anything you do you have to have a system right. uh, if you just go and just try stuff willy-nilly 
you're all over the place and you never really make any forward progress. You just do a lot of starts and stops along the way. Mm-hmm. The other issue with innovation, which is a big mistake people make all the time, is they make these gigantic plans for what they're going to do. And they take weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months and months to plan what they want to do. And because they put so much effort into the planning process, they're not willing to let it go if it's not working especially well. So right. instead, what I have a wheel mantra we call fail fast, fail cheap, which means you do a lot of small experiments. Mm-hmm. Most of those experiments are not going to work. Some of them do work. The ones that work, you keep, and the ones that don't, you let go. And the ones that do work, you build on that. That's called appreciative right. inquiry or mm-hmm. positive psychology. Too often businesses want to fix what's wrong. And fixing what's wrong is necessary, but it's not going to move you a whole lot further ahead. All it does is you say, okay, I'm I'm reacting to a problem. I'm fixing that problem. But it doesn't mean I'm looking forward and providing what the marketplace wants tomorrow. Right. Um, You know, so... You know, an example in the, in the in the construction world is there are all sorts of new technologies that are coming out for how you build things. Right. And someone's been 3D printing, for example, is something you know, a lot of houses are being 3D printed. I've seen around the world now. Um, that is something that's happening. I mean, that's a dramatic change. But there's a lot of smaller changes that happen also mm-hmm. that you can do new materials, new products, new methodologies. Right. And owners don't want to do that because they know what works and trying to experiment might cost them some money. If they're spending $15,000 on a roof, they want something or 25000 whatever it may be. They want something that's going to be tried, tested and true and it's going to last them their 20, 25, 30, 50 year, whatever shingles they're trying to buy. They probably don't want to be the guinea pigs of a new type of product unless it's very highly warranted, I'd say. Well, I, I, that sounds like you're talking about the, the homeowner, not the contractor. Right. Uh, so the contractor, I mean, for example, uh, you're in the software business, so you're aware of Scrum, I assume. Mm-hmm. Yes. Scrum is a, a method called Agile Technologies. It's a way of managing projects that's way more efficient than what has been done in the past. That's an innovation, Scrum. Well, right. if you take Scrum and you apply it to a construction project, which almost no contractors do, mm-hmm. you're going to take 20, 30, 40, 50% of your labor cost out. Wow. If, you went to, if I went to a contractor and said, how would you like to take 30% of your labor costs out guaranteed within one year? Mm-hmm. Now, they most likely would say, oh, that's a great idea. And they explain to them what they have to do, and they say, oh, I don't want to do that. Now, because why do they say they... It's innovation. It's hard. It's different. They have to change the systems and the methodology for how they do things. Mm-hmm. And it's not worth it. Sometimes they just say, you know, I'm happy with the money I'm making. And if I made 30% more, so what? Now, that's crazy. I mean, owners, I, I would think, I, I don't know, maybe just because I am, you know, from the sales background and very money hungry, but I would think that, hey, if I can get 
30% more income by doing things a better way. I do it. But on the other hand, I understand their point of view too, because I mean, again, I fall back to roofing because that's, that's the world I know. Um, but you're trying to get to where it's a repeatable system as much as you can, you know, obviously roof angles, stuff like that are different. And if you're changing how but, they do those but, systems, it's a, but here's the good, here's the good news about scrum. You don't have to do it the same way every time. Oh, interesting. Because with scrum, what I'm doing is I'm taking work mm -hmm. that I've got and I break it into pieces and I put it in the backlog. And then I move it into production where we have a, a, a planning meeting every one, two or three weeks, depending mm -hmm. on how long a sprint goes for, which is a unit of work that's going to produce a deliverable product. Right. And if I'm in roofing, a deliverable product might be a piece of the roof and not the whole roof. Right. Um, so I might do one week sprints if I was in the roofing business, probably not two or three week sprints. I'll spend an hour a week with my team at the end of the week doing a retrospective. I'll spend 10 minutes every morning having a stand-up meeting saying, what do we need to get done today? And what kind of problems are we, are we facing? And by doing that, I don't have to do it the same way every time. I'm looking at that particular job and that particular problem. Now, as time goes on, we will start part of Scrum as you assign points, which is how difficult something is to do. And they may, mm -hmm. and, and as time goes on, we're going to find we can assign less points because mm -hmm. we've got systems in place to make things go faster. And that's right. what the whole point is. Now, if I do that, it's a completely different way of thinking. And not everybody wants to do it because, again, learning a new methodology means you have to stop what you're doing and start doing something different. And right. the truth is, when people, if I ask 100 business owners, do you want to make more money? 100 business owners are going to tell me yes. Then if I tell that 100 business owners, here's what you have to do to make more money, probably 90 of them are going to say I'm not interested. So the right. truth is, business owners are not interested in making more money unless it fits into their worldview of how they want to live. Yeah, yeah, no, that's totally understandable. So with stage two planning, is that sort of type of the stuff that you go through with these business owners and discuss in helping them with? With a sustainable business, yes. With stage two planning, it's all about financial independence and the transition that you would make as you leave your business. That's our wealth management world. Sustainable business is our consulting world where we help our owners create personally and economically sustainable businesses. Yeah, we've had a couple people on the show that are financial side of things, not specifically like how you're specialized in, in your industry, but just general. And they were saying, I remember, I think it was Danny Lee that was on the show, uh, saying that one of the areas that most people uh, fail in when they're thinking their business plan, business strategy, is they usually fail in not having a secession protocol as far as what would happen if the owner. No, that's would pure. That's so, much, that's so much insurance crap. I'm sorry. I've been you doing this so? for 20. I've been doing this for 23 years. 
I've yet to have a business owner need a succession plan because of health reasons. Yes, ah, it happens. There you go. Yes, it happens. Yes, it happens. That's an excuse to sell life insurance. Okay. And they want okay. to sell whole life insurance. They don't want to sell term insurance. And he was from New York Life. Used. Yeah, of course. There he you wanted go. To sell whole, he wanted to sell whole life insurance policies. The biggest risk the business owner has is not a succession plan. Mm-hmm. It's running out of cash. Right. Cash, cash flow is king. And any guy in the wealth management world or anybody advising a business owner on finances that doesn't focus on keeping cash in the business and mm-hmm. creating excess cash is practice is malpractice. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sorry, yeah. but that junk about the succession plan is the most important thing and you need a buy sell agreement. If you don't get it, you're going to be in real trouble is pure crap and business owners know it. it it seems like you've come across this before oh yeah you I hear it all the time I why am i vending company people used to come in with the insurance business and they say you need a split dollar life insurance program which is a type of life insurance program that's used for executives and public corporations before right. the irs took it apart so i would mm-hmm. go to these these idiots and i would say now let me give me straight i own a business you want to sell me an insurance product that is going to have no tax deduction today, but a big tax bill tomorrow. And I'm doing this to tie myself down to my own business. How the heck does that make any sense? And I didn't use the word heck. I can promise you that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can imagine you, uh, I, I can fill in the blank there. So I've got to ask you one final question as we wrap up. Because, you know, we're talking about cash flow and I'm in the software software world as we've discussed right now. And the software world is changing. We're changing to where a perpetual <clears throat> module to a SaaS recurring revenue type model. Yeah, so about time you- software companies figure that out. So as an owner, I mean, what, so if you're advising one of your clients on wealth management, what's better, a a one-time cost of $150,000 for software or paying $5,000 a month for the recurring revenue for essentially ever? I mean, that's a cash flow question. Well, the first question you asked, what's the residual value of a customer? Meaning that if that customer is paying you $5,000 a month or how many months do you have that customer for on average? Typically, I mean, you want to keep them forever, but usually the break-even point in our world is going to be between 30 and 36 months to equal the perpetual license value. Okay, so that's a pretty easy decision. When I buy a software package, I'm going to keep it for five to 10 years. Right. Right. So that tells you right away, SAAS is a much better model. I mean, if you look at what Salesforce done, which is the king of SAAS. Oh, yeah. Um, their customers are with them forever. So for yeah, them. Yeah, I mean, Salesforce work- really was able to build themselves up. And it's a fascinating story because they came to strength, I think, during the the Great Recession, you know, you're talking 07, 08, 09, 2010, in that time period. 
because unlike SAP, where I am now, unlike a lot of the Microsoft, a lot of the other big players at the time that were only offering perpetual models, I mean, the economy was a wreck. Business owners didn't have that type of cash flow to pay for huge software amounts. And here you had uh, Salesforce saying, hey, look, we have an amazing system. You can pay us monthly. Bing, bang, boom. You know, you renew the contract annually. You can get more users. You can reduce users. And that was something that was kind of, it wasn't really new, but I think it was new in the way that they were doing it and executing it. And it really shaped how the software world is today. Well, you know, um, you know, software as a service, which is, uh, um, you know, a different way of looking at software is that, first of all, users like SAAS because they don't have to update their own computers. It's done at, mm -hmm. at, at the supplier level. So it makes life easier. And if you look at what's called total cost of ownership, mm -hmm. you're going to find that SAS typically outdoes you own the software and put it on servers in your office. Um, every piece of software we have now is software as a service. We do not own right. any internal software, nor would I own any internal software. I have no interest in having servers. I have no interest in having tech right. people running around my company trying to keep the darn servers running. I have no mm -hmm. interest trying to do the security patches to keep the bad guys out. It is much better to let the big companies like HubSpot or Salesforce mm -hmm. or Redtail, which is an industry-specific software that we use. Right. They've got teams that do nothing but that. Right, I right, have right. Five and people in my company and three virtual assistants. Same I don't thing with have us. I mean, with Vision Thirty Three, I mean, we still have some customers that, for whatever reason, maybe they need to be ITAR compliant. I don't know if you know what that means, but for our viewers. ITAR is like if you're selling things of national security to the U.S. federal government, only people that are American citizens, not even with a green card. You got to be American citizens to touch the data. The data has got to be hosted in the U.S. Most of those people usually end up buying licenses and doing it on-prem and having to manage it because of their type of business. But outside of that, 90% of other companies that we sell, if it's with SAP Business One, we usually put them in the cloud. Now, if we're doing, um, say, Gintac, because we do that financial solution as well, too, for accounting, with, say, Gintac, that's already in the cloud, MTE. And we had a VP from Sage on the show, uh, and I think she said the, the best thing ever. What the cloud allows you to do is to get Fortune 50 technology at a fraction of the cost. So that way, small businesses, mom and pop stores can take advantage of that level of technology. Yeah, you know, HubSpot's a great example of that. You look at the HubSpot. Yeah. You know, I've got a great deal with HubSpot because we signed on with them in our third year in business. I got grandfathered. Yeah. But even if you're not, if you're a mid-sized company, you have 30 to 50 people, which in mm -hmm. the small business world is a mid-sized company, by the way. Uh, HubSpot becomes affordable. You know, and yeah. you can you can do that, and it's a great platform. And yeah, it is. We for use HubSpot. 15, for fifteen, twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars a year, you're essentially getting a software suite that would have cost you to buy a license a quarter of a million dollars twenty years ago. Heck, yeah. my first 
my first computer system I bought in 1981 or 80 was a PDP-1124 digital computer, which was a mini computer. The thing with its software cost, and this was in 1981, right. $57,000. Mm, and the computer wow. had 256 kilobits of memory and yep. 20 megabytes of hard drive storage. Yeah, yeah, I remember. You can't late buy a computer that bad now. Yeah, no, you you can. In fact, right here, my cell phone is more powerful than that computer. By a that factor you just of fifty. By a factor. I mean, of 50. even do you know what Raspberry Pis are? Yeah, something you eat. <laughs> yeah. Well, in technology, it's basically I have one. Uh, it's not easily accessible, but it's a small little box. Okay. A little rectangle that is smaller than most modern day cell phones. And even with that, I mean, it is an extremely powerful Linux machine, like the newest model. I think it's got like eight gigs of RAM on it. You could put like a two terabyte um, SD card in there. And it's for people that build things, tinker things, stuff like that, want to learn how to program and hack and stuff like that. Um, and it's a, a very powerful solution. I, I suggest it for anybody, especially if they got kids that want to learn how to do basic programming skills like, hey, how do I hack Minecraft? It's amazing. It's amazing. But anyways, Josh, hey, we've had a, a good conversation. And I've got to say, I really love talking with you because 99% of the guests that I get on, they agree with me, whether I'm right or wrong. You actually push back when you had a different point of view. I love that. That makes it you unique. So tell us, tell us about your book. And tell us about how people can find you out there on the interwebs. Um, well, my second book is a continuation of my first book. Mm -hmm. And it's a business parable. And business parable is a novel with a point. So um, if you've ever read anything by Patrick Lencioni or Steve Farber or Alea Goldrap, which is the goal, those are all business fables. And right. it's called The Sale Ready Company what it takes to own a business someone would want to own, even if you have no intention of selling. Um, it's really easy to get. You just go to saleReadyCompany.com and you can buy the book there for half price. We have eight or nine bonuses, which are eBooks and checklists and infographics that will tell you how to implement the stuff in the story. Um, and the story is really kind of funny. I really enjoyed writing it. And the thing I found really interesting about this particular book is a bunch of folks who read it who are friends of mine who aren't in the business world at all. And they loved it. And they can't wait for the third one to come out because they want to find out what happened. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. And how so can people a lot reach of out? Fun. How yeah, can somebody people wants reach to, out to you? Someone wants to find me. It's easy to find me. Um, either go to stage two planning, it's number two, stage two planning.com, which is our wealth management world site, or sustainablebusiness.co, which is our consulting site. I've got videos, podcasts, blog posts. Uh, I've written 1,200 blog posts in there on all sorts of topics around how to make your life better, both on a personal and economic side. Uh, 
few yeah, the on personal them. side right there the personal side is important i think a lot of people especially business owners they put so much focus on the business side of things they often forget about the 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 personal side and getting that well that's why they get burned out yeah exactly it's really exactly. a simple so we tell people there's two sides of business there's personal and the economic side they're both different and both equally important. Oh, that's great. Well, I, I can tell you this. I'm going to grab a copy of your new book, but you got to promise that you're going to sign it to, uh, for me before you send it out. I do it for everyone who wants through our site. Okay. Okay. I'm looking forward to a personally signed book from you. Once I order it, I will get that done today. Josh, thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, definitely, you know, I'd love to have you when this pandemic thing finally ends and a, a, a period of time has passed. I would love to have you back on talking about how things have innovated and have changed from the COVID time period we're at right now. Be happy to do so. Yep. Thank you very much, sir. Have a great day. Thank you and you too. That was an awesome chat with Josh, right? <laughs> First, you all know the routine. If you found this interview helpful, if it sparked those warm and fuzzies, please do me a favor, hit that like button, smash that subscribe button. But if you really want to do us a solid, please share us out to your network, your friends, your colleagues, your family. Uh, whoever would not be embarrassed of your relationship with this show, share us out there, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. You know what I'm talking about. I'd love nothing more than to see Josh Patrick and Sharkbite Biz out there trending. So let's get it done. Now let's get back to our rock star guest of Josh, okay? In the very beginning, Josh tells us, I think, a really important story. He tells us about how he realized that he was the worst possible human and the worst type of boss to work for. I mean, realistically, that's almost verbatim what he was saying, I think. Um, and we've all had those types of bosses during our career. Yes, as a manager, owner, executive, it's true. You cannot make everybody happy, but you can Balance that line so you aren't on everybody's hate list. I mean, you should not be the yelling for whatever it is, drama king, drama queen type boss. I mean, you should be out there enabling your employees, hitting your hands dirty, helping them excel at the jobs they do. Now, I, I think it was really cool, though, with Josh's story because we kind of turned it around there. And he was able to really just evaluate what he was doing. And he opened his eyes to those criticisms, I think, to a degree that really does take strength and courage. So really excellent job with that, Josh. Many blames other for their lack of success or blame other things for their failures. Josh held himself accountable. And him doing that is really what allowed him to grow as a person, as a business, and as a professional, okay? Those three items, personal growth, professional growth, business growth, they are the three pillars, the three staples of this very show. That is why Shark Bite Biz exists, because we're looking for people to help people tell stories. We want people like Josh to tell their stories about how they've messed up, how they've done things wrong. And it's to help enable people like you to get that personal, professional, and business growth. and. Here's a way that Josh 
was able to achieve that. So thank you so much, Josh, for sharing that story. I think out of all the stories we've had on the show, Josh, with his experience, you know, look, he's not a young whippersnapper out there. Uh, he's been around the game. He's telling us stories from a couple decades ago. But he wouldn't have been able to achieve that growth and be able to tell us that story and how he did it if he didn't do it. And it's hard. It's hard. Thank goodness we have things like this podcast, Shark Bite Biz, or other places that are able to give you these tips, these important, important tips that are really allowing you to grow to another level. I mean, they're, they're giving you the coaching for free. The show is for free. It's not costing you a dime. Well, actually, I lie. Time is money. <laughs> so it does cost you something to listen to this, but this is a wise investment of your time, hearing the stories like this from people like Josh's mouth. Another great point Josh brought up was innovation, okay? Plain and simple, have a plan, okay? That's essentially what he was saying. Uh, innovation, what happens is that a lot of people are like, hey, I want to make this better. And they don't really have a plan. They just know they want to try something out, whether it's a software program or whatever. And Josh says too often, people just end up doing things like he said, quote unquote, willy nilly and all over the place. It, you know, you just end up with so many starts and stops and it's really not doing you justice, giving you the results that you were looking to get. This is so true, and I don't think it really resonated as much during the interview as it did for me post-interview when I was re-watching it. You do need to have a plan to innovate. I mean, whether it's the simplest thing, you have to really test that stuff out, but have the plan to lay it out. Implement the test. Test it out. You know, accountability with the test to make sure people are actually performing the innovation. Otherwise, it turns into that old, said, tried, tested, and true, I'll try versus I'll do argument. I'll try to test this innovation out. Or he says, no, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to test this innovation out. I'm going to get it done. What do you see? And, you know, something on that try versus do mentality. We got an awesome interview coming up soon with uh, Tiffany Largy of Do the Damn Thing Nation. And, you know, it's all about that try versus do mentality. So that drivers do mentality, I think, really comes into play with innovation to be able to unlock the steps to progress and move forward. So lastly, I just really thought his advice on the succession plan was good. Uh, like he said, it was just something he thinks it was something else for other people to be able to sell it. It's not needed. Now, he had more on that subject to say than just that. But I do think there is some validity to those words of wisdom from Josh. I'd encourage you to, you know, really take those words in or just re-listen to that segment if you want. But it, it's, I think, pretty, pretty important advice there, too. It kind of balances out some of the things that some of the other coaches, some of the other financial people have told us on the show. Also, please do not forget, we have Josh's two books right here. Sustainable, a fable about creating a personality and economically sustainable business. Uh, that is probably one of the longest titles I've ever read on a book. <laughs> Love it. And then the sale ready company. You know, how do you get your company up to being sale ready? This is a great book. Thank you so much, Josh. 
for sending them and putting a little note in these books. I am going to have the link to both of these books down below, below if you're on YouTube or if you're in the podcast, look at the description. You'll see the links for the books right there. Question of the day. How do you innovate your company? Do you create a plan or do you wig it? Leave a comment down below on YouTube. And do you want to be on the show? If so, send out an email. Interviews at sharkbitebiz.com. Please don't forget to join the channel. It's $3 a month to become a baby shark or get the freshest copy available to human Kai. Zombie themed, zombie inspired copy. You know, get back to life. First thing in the morning with the freshest coffee you can get to your doorstep. That is deadhousecoffee.com. Use code SHARK. You'll get 20% off your order. And we'll get all the proceeds to help us keep growing this show. You all know this by now, but I'm David Strausser. This is Shark Fight Biz. And we'll see you all next episode. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Shark Bite Biz. We hope you got some insightful info from this podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and visit us on the web at www.sharkbitebiz.com. How has business changed for you in the 20s? Email us at podcast at sharkbitebiz.com so you can join us and share your story.